in our healthcare system at large, we've gotten to a place where, for the most part, abortion is segregated from mainstream medical care. I think if women choose, they should be able to get their abortion care where they get the rest of their care. We know that at least first trimester abortion is extremely safe, can be done in an outpatient setting with very few complications, very low risk to women. And it's not, not because of any medical reason. It's not provided in primary care offices, in many OBGYN offices, purely because of the stigma and because institutions, Catholic and otherwise, would rather somebody else deal with it. This is Choiceless, a storytelling podcast from Rewire Radio about reproductive injustice and the laws that put people in choiceless situations. I'm Jen Stanley, senior staff reporter at Rewire and the host of this podcast. This is the last episode of season one. We'll be taking a break to record more stories and we'll be back in the winter. This season, I've spoken to women across the country who face barriers to accessing birth control, abortion, and prenatal care. We've explored the real life and at times devastating ramifications of anti-choice policies and discussed how even when these laws are struck down, the damage done is often beyond repair. Why is abortion care more often than not sequestered from other health care? Even in states that haven't passed much anti-choice legislation, most people seeking abortions will have to walk through crowds of protesters in prayer circles, yelling and flashing graphic photos at them. I'll be real with you. If I were going to a health clinic for a colonoscopy, which is statistically riskier than abortion, I'd be pretty annoyed and maybe even a little traumatized if a group of people blocked the entryway, showing me photos of anuses and the insides of a human digestive tract. Let's face it, medical procedures can be ugly, but keeping reproductive health care separate from other health care is a way to shame and control the bodies of women, trans, and gender nonconforming people. One thing we haven't talked much about this season is how anti-choice organizations, activists, and lawmakers use freedom of speech and freedom of religion to deny access and further segregate and stigmatize birth control and abortion care. Today, we hear from Dr. Deborah Stolberg, who became a family physician and abortion provider in an attempt to provide full-spectrum health care to underserved communities. But during her residency, she saw the dark side of so-called religious freedom and the effect that it can have on quality of care. Here's her story. Um, I did not go to college thinking that I wanted to be a doctor. I knew growing up in Chicago and specifically in Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago that I was really interested in issues around urban poverty and how families cope and um, try to thrive in that setting. I had done quite a bit of tutoring and other types of volunteering on the south side of Chicago and um, I thought that I would be a social worker or maybe a teacher or a psychologist um, working with families living in urban poverty. It was in that setting that the idea of medicine as a means to that end first um, really appealed to me. Um, I went to Harvard for college and I was working in an after-school program through the Phillips Brooks House um, working in one of the housing projects in Boston and the kids I was working with were 10 and 11 years old and mostly girls. And a couple of the girls that I had gotten close with 
were talking among themselves and talking with us, their college student tutors, about their older sisters and cousins who were having babies in high school. And we listened to these girls talk, and it was clear that at 10 and 11, a lot of these kids anticipated that that was their only future, that that was their path, was that um, they would have kids. They were having conversations about, did they want to wait until they got out of high school before they would have their first baby? Um, And this was such a different life experience for me. And I saw these kids as really smart and having lots of great ideas. And the idea to me that um, early motherhood was the only option they could see um, just was really striking and and um, kind of upsetting to me. Um, so I started thinking about the role of an adolescent medicine doctor or an OBGYN working in a community health center um, as someone that could potentially really make a difference and get to know teenagers and um, provide options, help them um, access options for their lives maybe other than becoming parents um, really young. The first step was taking a lot of science classes that I had avoided. I was a women's studies major, interested in public policy around a lot of these issues. Um, So first I had to go and make sure that I was okay taking chemistry and biology. And when I figured out that I could basically make it through those, um, I decided to go ahead and apply to medical school. Um, I had to go back and take a whole bunch of science classes and then um, ended up going back to Boston and back to Harvard for med school and was able to actually do a little bit more work in that same community. And the um, piece that really changed for me during medical school was finding family medicine. I went in thinking OBGYN was the path you take if you want to provide women's health and focus on reproductive health. Um, and through a couple wonderful mentors, in the Boston area and around the country, I learned that family physicians really can be full scope reproductive health care providers. I knew going into medical school that I wanted to be an abortion provider, that I wanted to include abortion as one of the services I offered because I felt like it was really important and something that um, women don't have the access to that they deserve. Um, So the discovery that family physicians can be abortion providers, that there are many family physicians who are abortion providers and can provide women's health in sort of a holistic context where you're seeing a person within their family, within their community, um, was really appealing to me. And that's what I love about the field of family medicine. And um, that's been a great choice for me. Dr. Stolberg was actively involved in medical students for choice. And though she was aware of the prevalence of clinic violence while she was in med school in the late 90s and early aughts, she says the overall culture at Harvard Medical School was supportive of her decision to become an abortion provider. When I finished medical school, I made the decision to come home to Chicago, where I had grown up, um, to do my residency. And at the time, there was not a single family medicine residency in the Chicago area that offered abortion training as a routine part of the curriculum. Um, There were programs that expressed support, and um, there were opportunities. People told me during the interview process that there would be opportunities for me to get that training. Um, So I decided to pick a hospital that told me I had a lot of 
elective time I could use and that expressed support for my using my elective time to get abortion training. Um, and that turned out to be more difficult than I thought for a couple reasons. I chose West Suburban Hospital for my residency. And West Suburban is a really interesting place. It sits just on the suburban side of the western edge of the city of Chicago. So on literally sits on Austin Boulevard. And on the east side of Austin Boulevard is the neighborhood of Austin and the west side of Chicago. And on the west side of Austin Boulevard is Oak Park. West Suburban Hospital has a really strong commitment to providing good high quality care to the underserved community on the west side of Chicago. They're known in the family medicine world for a very strong training program in women's health and especially obstetrics and maternal child health. And really, they take a public health approach to a lot of those issues. Um, at the time, they also expressed support for my getting abortion training and told me that other people had gone through that. Um, it turned out to be more challenging for me to get abortion training than I expected for a number of reasons. One is that uh, the clinics around the Chicago area at the time were really not set up to take residents. And I didn't know that at the time, but I ended up having to call around a lot and use a lot of my contacts for med students, from med students for choice. And even so, uh, in order to get the abortion training that I felt I needed, I ended up having to spend a month and a half in New York, and then I was able to get in for one month at Planned Parenthood. The other thing that happened during my residency is that West Suburban Hospital announced it was going to be taken over by Resurrection Healthcare, a large Catholic health system. This, I learned this because I was on call one night and the attending physician I was working with, you know, we kind of ran off the labor and delivery floor, grabbed a quick dinner and we were sitting in the cafeteria and he said to me, did you hear we're going to be working for the Pope? And I had no idea what he was talking about, um, but came to find out that West Suburban was in the final stages of sealing the deal to be acquired by Resurrection. How far along were you in your residency? I was in my first year of a three-year program. Now, the first thing that I thought of was how it was going to affect my abortion training that I felt really strongly about. And I should mention that West Suburban was not providing abortion services at the time. So like many people at the time, I thought that the implications for patients would not be that big because we weren't providing abortions and Catholic hospitals can't do abortions. But as I was driving home the next day, I started thinking about other services we were providing and wondering if those would be impacted. Refusal laws, also called conscience laws, allow people and institutions such as hospitals, pharmacists, employers, and insurers to refuse to provide, pay for, or refer for medical treatment. These laws came into play in 1973 after Roe v. Wade legalized abortion in the United States, and we've seen a resurgence of this kind of legislation in the last decade. In recent years of turmoil in the healthcare industry, nonprofit and community hospitals have struggled to stay afloat, while Catholic hospitals have taken over and thrived. And when a non-sectarian hospital merges with a Catholic hospital, it becomes subject to the rules of the church. 
About 20% of the hospital beds in the United States are owned by the Catholic Church, according to NARAL Pro-Choice America. And as of 2013, 10 of the 25 largest healthcare networks in the United States were Catholic, according to a joint report by the American Civil Liberties Union and Merger Watch, a nonprofit organization that advocates for scientifically accurate patient care and a patient's beliefs over the religious beliefs of the healthcare organization. I called Susan Yano, who was a friend and colleague and mentor of mine when I was in medical school, and she said, you have to call Merger Watch. And that's what I did. I called the organization Merger Watch, and um, they were and still are really the experts at helping communities that want to resist a Catholic hospital merger or takeover or limiting the effects of Catholic hospital takeovers and the effects of um, Catholic and other restrictions on care in general. And we did our best to launch a coalition and a community effort to stop that hospital takeover. Um, We created a group that we called West Suburban Merger Watch Um, We brought together organizations and people from the community and from other groups around Chicago that were concerned. Um, In the end, the hospital was taken over by resurrection. I think we were able to apply some pressure and get the hospital to make some some minor concessions. Um, But I do think that, uh, that women and Others in the community really lost access to services when the hospital became a part of Resurrection. One of the most prominent services that we were providing on a regular basis at West Suburban and that we had to stop immediately when we became part of the Catholic system was postpartum tubal ligations. Well, all tubal ligations. Um, But when women were getting their prenatal care with a doctor at West Suburban or one of the affiliated clinics, it was not uncommon for women who had, you know, reached their desired family size to say, after I give birth to this baby, can you tie my tubes? Um, And that was their plan. They had spoken with it with about it with their doctor. And then the hospital got taken over by resurrection and they go into labor and we can't do their tubal. Um, which was really upsetting. And I have spoken with residents who trained after me, and one um, effect they pointed out is that even once West Suburban was no longer under Catholic auspices, there were still many doctors who had trained during its time of being owned by Resurrection, and they never learned how to do tubal ligations. And so now women coming in to a hospital that's no longer Catholic are facing a situation where the doctor on call might not have the skills. It also affected a doctor's ability to prescribe contraceptives if the doctor was employed by resurrection or had a practice in a building owned by resurrection. The rules around that and how it gets applied are not uniform across the board. And you hear a lot of workarounds for how doctors do that, but it certainly is not as straightforward as if you go see your doctor and they're not in a Catholic facility. So let me give you some examples. One of the things that West Suburban you know, told us, my program director specifically said, is 
Well, in many cases, a patient who's getting birth control may have a medical reason why they, why they want or need the birth control. Maybe they have acne and the birth control pill we know is effective for treating acne. So if your reason for giving it is acne, you can give birth control. You can't give it as a contraceptive, but if it happens to have the side effect of being contraceptive and you're giving it for the acne, you can give it. So that workaround of giving contraceptives for non-contraceptive purposes, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, we know you patient actually want contraception, but we'll find some other diagnosis you have that we can say is the reason we're giving it is what we were told to do and is what I've heard from a lot of doctors. They're, they do or they're told under the table or maybe in some official capacity to do. And for the residents, because we were employed by the Catholic hospital, we were told that we were no longer allowed to insert IUDs, for example. So um, we had to either choose to sort of do that under the table without, you know, and hope that our program didn't find out about it, or we had to refer our patients to someone else. The merger changed the protocol for dispensing emergency contraceptives in sexual assault cases in the ER. In fact, 55% of Catholic hospitals will not dispense emergency contraceptives even if a patient comes in after having been raped, according to NARAL. Patients who came into the emergency room at West Suburban after a sexual assault, when the hospital was secular, a routine part of the protocol was that they received emergency contraception or, you know, if it was appropriate, if they were within the medically effective time period. When the hospital takeover talks were happening, one of the things that our merger watch group did was try to call attention to the fact that emergency contraception may not be available in the ER. And so the hospital at the highest level made a decision that they would follow a protocol that has been used by other Catholic hospitals. It was called the Peoria Protocol after a hospital in Peoria, uh, Illinois, where it was first used, I believe, that says if a woman comes in after a sexual assault and is medically appropriate for emergency contraception, we will administer an ovulation test. If it shows she's ovulating, we can't give it because then there's a risk of preventing implantation of a fertilized egg. Um, Now, around the time of ovulation is the time that you're most likely to conceive and therefore the time that the medicine would be most helpful. Um, But they decide they would administer this protocol or they could call a doctor from the off-site clinic and have a procedure for the patient to get a prescription for emergency contraception off-site from another doctor. Again, adding a layer of hassle, need for transportation, et cetera, for the patient. Um, But that was their workaround. And this is really only the beginning. The ambiguity of many Catholic hospitals' ethical training regarding how to care for a patient with an ectopic pregnancy or a preterm rupture of the membrane could lead to life-threatening complications. One case, a woman came in with an ectopic pregnancy and the doctor who was on call for the obstetric service was consulted. And in her medical opinion, the best treatment for this patient was methotrexate, a medicine that you can take for ectopic pregnancy that basically dissolves the pregnancy that's developing in the fallopian tube and allows the woman to have her ectopic pregnancy treated without surgery. And I should say that ectopic pregnancy is life-threatening for the pregnant woman. It means that the pregnancy has implanted outside of the uterus and 97% of them are in the fallopian tube. And if the embryo continues to grow in the fallopian tube, the tube can rupture and the woman can hemorrhage. 
and die. And before we had modern treatment for ectopic pregnancy, many, many women died of ectopic pregnancy. Um, and the best thing that we can do for it is identify it early and treat it. And in some cases, you do need surgery. It's just not a good candidate for medical treatment with methotrexate. But in this case, the doctor felt that methotrexate would be a very good option for the patient. And this doctor had gone through the required training on the Catholic ethical and religious directives. And her interpretation from what she had heard was that now that this hospital is Catholic, we cannot give methotrexate for ectopic pregnancy, that that will be seen as an abortion and it's not allowed. And so she recommended to this patient, if you want methotrexate, which is what I think is best, you should sign yourself out from this hospital and go to a different hospital where you can get it. Same thing with the rupture of membranes cases. So when the bag of water has broken in a pregnant woman, the risk of an infection setting into the uterus that can spread to her body goes up as time goes on. And so it's generally thought that if, you know, nature has declared itself and the, the pregnancy is ending, uh, that the sooner that the fetus and the pregnancy be removed, the safer it is for the woman. Now, again, that isn't to say that there aren't some times where it's okay to watch and wait for a while. Um, but what happened is that a couple of patients came in, their bag of water had broken, the doctors determined that the fetus was not viable and that this was the beginning of a miscarriage. But because the fetus still had a heartbeat, the doctors were told that they could not do anything to expedite ending the pregnancy. They couldn't induce labor, they couldn't do any procedures. And this type of case, the failure to act in a timely fashion when the um, membranes have ruptured and the fetus is pre-viable, are cases that we hear about around the country. When I learned that the hospital I had gone to enthusiastically because I thought it was gonna be a great place to learn comprehensive women's health was going to become Catholic, I was both very distressed for myself and for my patients and very motivated to learn more about it and do what I could to fight it. It became the defining experience of my residency and has gone on to shape a lot of my career. When she was a resident, Dr. Stolberg was surprised by the lack of data regarding the difference in care at a Catholic facility versus at a non-sectarian hospital. She and another researcher, Lori Friedman, have devoted their research to learning more about patient and physician perspectives of Catholic health care. In an effort to get more research on this topic, Lori Friedman and I have started what we call the Research Consortium on Religious Healthcare Institutions. And our goal is to provide data and gather, do, conduct good research so that policymakers addressing this important issue can do so, so with good information. Um, you know, we feel that patients should be able to have their own values expressed in the healthcare they receive and that healthcare should be respectful of that. And policy that promotes that, I think, needs a good sense of what's so, what is going on currently in religious and secular institutions. What we're trying to find out is, do women even know, first of all, how, how do you identify a Catholic hospital? How do you learn if it is, you know, what its religious affiliation is? 
And if they know it's Catholic, do they know that means I shouldn't expect to get a tubal ligation here? I shouldn't to get expect to get an abortion even if it's um, for a severe fetal anomaly or something like that, because I think as I did when I was a resident, I expected that abortion care would be restricted at a Catholic hospital, but I did not expect such a broad scope of reproductive health services would be restricted. And if other women are like me, I don't think it's fair to put the onus of, oh, you can choose to go elsewhere on women if hospitals aren't being clear in communicating what they do and don't provide. When you go to your doctor and they and you say, hi, I'm here for my checkup and I'd also like birth control, and they say, great, let's you know do your pap smear and let's talk to you about STDs. But if you want birth control, we're going to have to come up with a different reason because I can't do birth control for birth control's sake. That's sending a message. It's sending a message that that's not a legitimate medical need, that that's... Uh, a separate part of healthcare or a separate part of um, your medical needs as a person. And um, even if you happen to be lucky enough to be able to make it to that next appointment, get the contraceptive you want, go to the other hospital, get the tubal ligation you want, you've been told this need is separate. It's marginal. It's, and I think that's stigmatizing. And I think that's part of the harm is that it further segregates reproductive health care. Dr. Stelberg has a general primary care practice at a federally qualified health center that does not provide abortions. She provides abortions through John H. Stroger Hospital of Cook County, a public teaching hospital in Chicago. I provide abortions through a teaching contract, and I work at Stroger once a week. Um, so, And I teach uh, family medicine residents at UIC who come there for part of their training. Um, so I do provide abortions, but I don't provide abortions in an integrated way with my primary care. Uh, in general, they're separate. They, they're separate for me as they are for many patients and in our healthcare system. <laughs> Being conscientious about when you have a child, I think is one of the most responsible things a person can do. The ability to have a healthcare provider you trust who can talk to you about your safe and effective options and help you access the option that you choose, whether that's a contraceptive method or abortion, to me is a right. We should all live in a society where women have the ability to make those choices for themselves, not just on paper, but actually have the healthcare relationships, have health, have access to those services. I think it should be the opposite of stigmatized. I think it should be celebrated. <laughs> We'll be back with new episodes this winter. In the meantime, our podcast feed in iTunes and elsewhere will transform from Choiceless to Rewire Radio. While we prepare new episodes of this show, Rewire will bring you new podcasts and audio stories right here. So stay subscribed and look for a lot more reproductive justice coverage and analysis coming this fall from Rewire Radio. This episode of Choiceless was produced by me, Jen Stanley, for Rewire Radio, with editorial oversight by Mark Folletti, our director of multimedia. Jody Jacobson is our editor-in-chief. Brady Swenson is our director of technology. Music for this episode was by Doug Helsel. Thank you to all the staff at Rewire. And a very special thank you to Rachel Perrone, our director of communications, Lauren Gutierrez, our communications associate, and Stacey Burns, our manager of social media outreach. 
They've worked tirelessly all season long to promote the show and ensure we've had a very successful first season. For more information on refusal laws and conscience clauses, visit our website at rewire.news choiceless. Thanks for listening.